Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I talk with Ben Insler. Ben was the first assistant editor on David Fincher's feature film, Mank, which was edited in Adobe Premiere. David Fincher's production company has its own post house, Number 13, which I've had the privilege of visiting in the past. And it's really on the cutting edge of post, with Premiere being at its core for the last several years. Ben has been an assistant editor on Mindhunter, which is also a Fincher production edited at number 13, and has worked as an assistant with Oscar-winning editor Kirk Baxter at Kirk's commercial editing house, Exile. Ben's other work includes editing numerous TV series and specials. I've already interviewed Kirk about Mank, and that discussion of the craft will be coming in a few weeks. But Kirk turned me over to Ben for a discussion of the workflows and technology of editing Mank including their midstream move to having the entire editing team cutting from home when COVID hit California in mid-March. So I, I watched the movie. I loved it. It was, and, and I already got a chance to talk to Kirk, which was, uh, was fun. He's, he's interesting. And, and one of the reasons why, you know, uh, he wanted you in on this call is because he's almost proud of how untechnical he is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. To the point where I've had conversations with Kirk before. And he stopped me and been like, you do what you do. I'll do what I do. <laughs> it's funny because he's actually, he's quite adept at using the technical tools. I think that he just, he's very skilled at saying, this is where I need to place my focus. And I, if I create too much uh, clutter <laughs> with other things to pay attention to, then it becomes distracting. And he's totally right. I mean, I, we all experience the same thing. Yeah, we've all got our, our uh, what, the seat on the bus, I think is the term. So. <laughs> Let's talk about, just to start out with, what the workflow was like, what the schedule was like, and, and how you determined how Premiere was going to work for you. Sure. Why don't we take that in reverse? Okay, sure. And if I get too sidetracked and forget to hit <laughs> one of the three points, just remind me because I can... I'll come back. <laughs> how we decided how Premiere was going to work for us was sort of... The, the foundation for that was sort of laid down previously. Um, by us using Premiere for multiple projects. I started at number 13. I've worked with Kirk for, for a while, but I started at number 13 with Kirk and David and that whole team in the middle of Mindhunter Season 2. And they've been using Premiere for a little while. Uh, sort of established pipeline was in place um, when I got there. It wasn't like we were building the whole pipeline from scratch. One of the things that's really powerful about Premiere and the way that we use it is that we shoot everything with stabilization in mind and we shoot everything with visual effects in mind, as opposed to uh, knowing that it can happen, but treating it as two sort of separate stages where we get the edit done and then the visual effects happen. And so in editorial, we actually work very fluidly between the two, where in the offline stages, we will be doing offline comps, offline visual effects. All of the assistants will. Kirk will be doing it as well in the timeline himself. And really having this sort of like symphonic balance between Premiere and After Effects. And so the freedom to be able to do that work in the timeline in Premiere bounce back and forth very fluidly to After Effects without having to um, do a lot of rebuilding. Um, it kind of does all of the setup for you. And we have some customized scripts that we have written, uh, like JavaScript and After Effects, to even 
make that a little bit more streamlined so that we're not essentially, say, creating the same nulls and sets of sort of templated working structures over and over and over again. We just press a button and it does it. And uh, actually, we have two ways of doing it, depending on who's doing it. So like I have one preference. Our other assistant editor, Jennifer Chung, has another preference that we actually, we built two separate functions. And But but we have all of that in place so that we can work very fluidly. We've, we've extended some of that on Mank. We didn't have that automation in After Effects before Mank. We built it this time. Um, but that's one of the reasons why Premiere is, is used. To jump back quickly, you mentioned 13. That's the post-production house, right, of just David Fincher, correct? Yes. N- number 13 is David Fincher's production post-production office it's it's a dedicated facility just for him it's where we all work uh we'll do all of post there and they'll do all of pre-production there as well um sometimes we'll have two two things going on at the same time we'll have you know pre-production going on in one part of the office while post is happening in another part of the office yeah multiple edit suites and a really solid core i've been there um back I think either at the very beginning of my, the first season of Mindhunter or might have even been earlier than that. And there's color correction suites. There's, and, and a, as you mentioned, some really powerful um, custom scripting, scripting stuff, especially for ingest, right? Even ingest and all the organization is custom scripted. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, to go back to what you said about in-house color correction, um, you're right. We do have a number of edit suites during Mindhunter, we actually expanded out to, uh, I think there were three, yeah, three dedicated editors editing suites operating in parallel um, while there were uh, a number of assistant editors also operating in parallel, all in the same building, all tapped into the same centralized high-speed storage. Um, And then I I believe it was on Mindhunter season two uh, when we renovated the color grading suite so that is now, uh, you know, a fully fledged DI theater that Mank was entirely graded in, and Mindhunter was entirely graded in. You know, the the colorist Eric White and David and and all of us, uh, should we pop into the room, uh, have an opportunity to actually see everything on a uh, on a broadcast SDR monitor, on an HDR monitor, and up on a twenty foot screen. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Right right there, just walk downstairs. You know, you want to see how something's going to look, you just walk downstairs and look at it. It's not a whole big process, which is really fluid and amazing. To answer the question you just asked, yeah, we um, we do have a variety of additional scripted tools. Um, one of the big ones that we've been using for a while that was created by uh, Billy Peak and Tyler Nelson previously as assistant editors at Number 13 uh, is this platform called Dispatch, which is an extensively scripted version of FileMaker. A lot of post, a lot of editorial teams and post-production teams use FileMaker as their database for tracking dailies, as a codebook for tracking visual effects. And those guys really took it to the next level to actually be able to use that database as an automation platform for ingesting dailies and for doing visual effects turnovers. So we process all of our dailies or for, for Mank um, in uh, Photochem's Next Lab. And once that's all rendered for us that also has the ability to export a metadata file, which we then ingest into our dispatch filemaker database. And then that has the ability to, using that data, create XMLs that can be imported into Premiere. And by importing that XML um, and through a little bit of sort of side work with Adobe, uh, we actually are able to have Premiere simply on ingesting the XML 
uh, create all of the multicams that are already synced up for us and already strung out in the order that we want in a timeline so that we can get right into breaking down the dailies and getting them over the curve. Mm, that's super nice because, right, for you, that means as an assistant, you can spend more time doing things that are more productive or at least more creative or more interesting, right? We can, we, that is all true. And we can also uh, not feel like we are in as much of a rush to get all of the, so what I'm going to call technical bookkeeping done and also the really important creative work done, even though, you know, some of that creative work on our end, uh, I say creative work, it's still bookkeeping. Um, but let's say that we're going through the process of preparing dailies and we're trying to get all of the script supervisors notes transposed from the page onto the clips so that as Kirk is reviewing, he can actually see those notes in real time in Premiere. We put all of that data onto the clips themselves. Dispatch actually has some methodology for being able to take some of that data from uh, digitally recorded script notes and um, putting them directly onto the clips on that XML ingest process. Uh, but we still go through, we make sure that it's all accurate. We make sure that everything's transposed correctly, that everything, maybe there was a little note scribbled on a script that didn't actually make it into uh, like a editor's log or a facing pages log. Um, and so we'll, we'll track all that stuff and make sure that it's all there. And to be able to get the syncing and multi-clipping string out steps out of the way, it gives us more time to make sure that's right. Because at the end of the day, we really do work at a very fast pace. Um, we will shoot. If we shoot on a Monday, those dailies are going to Kirk on Tuesday morning. And, and we have at least one person that's starting on those at 8 a.m. so that when Kirk comes in, they are ready for him. So right there, if that syncing and uh, multi-clipping process breaks down, that could easily get us past Kirk's entry time without anything even being looked at, just getting all the technical stuff done. Uh, so those tools are really important to us. Does it dispatch or the other tools you use also uh, incorporate like audio, the audio reports or the camera reports as well? Um, it doesn't incorporate the audio and the camera reports. That's actually done on more of a manual side as the dailies are being processed by the dailies tech and things like like star takes and whatnot. All that information does come through. It's just more of a process of that it gets put in manually as the dailies are being processed. And then when we get that metadata file from, from the next lab, it's all embedded in there. So it is automated on our side. It's just not automated 100%. And is next lab embedded at number 13 or is that an outside process? Well, it's embedded at number 13 while we're in production, but it is not a mainstay. It, it comes in when we're in production. And then once we sort of have no need for it anymore, once shooting is complete, uh, we, we do this process sometimes that we call rebaking, where, you know, we're shooting everything in a raw format. And then in order to turn it into editable dailies, uh, we bake certain things down, like the exposure, the ISO, the color temperature, all of that stuff, even some, some look details. And every once in a while, uh, we have something happening where there's like, you know, clouds passing by. And so the exposure is changing slightly. And then as that gets edited, the part that has now become hot in that take, because the clouds are gone as it's cutting back and forth, now appears way hotter, even though overall the exposure of the shot from when it started rolling is actually correct. So uh, we will actually go back and reprocess that shot through NextLab so that it more accurately represents the correct balance in the edit based on how the shot's being used. 
And so we will hang on to the next lab for a little bit after production stops, just in case those that last week of shooting needs some rebaking to be done. Because the next lab system is pretty powerful to generate those dailies in minutes as opposed to what would be hours on other less powerful systems. And for someone who hasn't worked with next lab, it's basically it's like a cart with a bunch of gear. Um, we actually get it set up as an office. <laughs> Um, but yes, it can be, uh, I don't know how much it can be like a cart the same way that you have a DIT's cart or a sound cart, because there is a lot of interplay between multiple systems. I believe that our system, it had one centralized server that we actually tapped into our fiber network and gave them a dedicated fiber network that was down in our uh, machine room. And then there were two other computers that were up in an office for the DIT tech to use. And one of those was used for ingest and organization and, and sort of metadata processing while the other was being used for actual transcoding. So it's a, you know, it, it takes up like right there you're at, and you know, he's looking, he's got a, uh, a monitor in there too, uh, an actual video monitor to be able to look at the actual video levels and the image. So, you know, you're talking right there, like just in one room, two computers and five or six screens, it's a little bigger than a part. <laughs> While we're talking about look and exposure, tell me a little, you know, for those who haven't seen at least the trailer for Mank, it's black and white. Tell me about the shooting of that and the processing of it. Was it shot in color? Uh, it, the decision was made to shoot it entirely in black and white from the start. It was shot on a red monochrome sensor. And uh, we, it was actually very funny because uh, I remember having a conversation with some of the other assistants when some of the, you know, some paparazzi person caught like a, a day on location with uh, Gary Oldman outside of a hotel. And it was the first time we actually saw the color of the suit that he was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, oh, this is so weird. We've never seen this before. It, it looks different. We really sort of dove in and lived in that world of black and white, which is actually quite fun. You know, it, you, you get past the initial sort of shift of, oh, we're not working in color anymore. And it was actually very quick to make that shift and say, all right, we're living in a world of black and white. In terms of the processing of it, um, if, if you've seen any of the trailers, um, there's a variety of processing that's being added. Um, and that that's it's actually different from trailer to trailer uh, that, that has been released, but a variety of processing to give the footage an uh, older age feeling so that it doesn't have this, it's not black and white with this like crisp, perfect digital modernity to it. We started that way back in the dailies process. One of the things that David wanted to do was give the footage what we called a black bloom that would have been uh, representative of one of the older film stocks, where as the uh, film is processed, the blacks sort of leach out into the um, more exposed areas. And uh, the darker areas of the image kind of get this little black halo to them. The same way that if you're shooting a really, really bright thing, that bloom sort of eat you know ekes out a little bit over the dark areas it's the same kind of idea in a way and and we did that we figured out a way to do that with photochem in our next lab process and so we had a, a very untweaked at that point but representative look of that all the way through the edit of the film that's awesome i i there's a good sapphire plug-in uh, that does black bloom and it looks oh really i've <laughs> I put that on a lot of things <laughs> it's a great look well 
Yeah, it, it's a very cool look. And and one of the things that we did learn right from the beginning, though, is that we built a few different types of bloom depending on what LUT was being used for what day. Were we shooting at day? Were we shooting at night? Was it day for night? And what we found out was that depending on the overall balance of the image and how light or dark the image was based on its exposure, sometimes the bloom that we had set was way too strong or actually not really seen at all. And so we may have tweaked a little bit of that in the offline process when the dailies are being processed. But when that effect went down to Eric and the color grading suite, that was tweaked just as much as any other uh, grading step would be to make sure that that worked basically per shot. So you talked a lot about the the kind of automatic processes and the use of metadata. What is the purpose of a lot of that metadata that you're spending so much time and effort to make sure is baked into these clips? What do you, what is it getting used for? Uh, I guess there's there's two sides to that. There's the metadata of the clips and there's the metadata of the process of the day. Uh, the metadata of the process of the day is kind of what we were talking about before with uh, helping us get everything uh, track through the dailies ingest process. And most of that is either translating data from script notes, from just sort of like camera reports and, and sound reports, like you were saying. And then there's the other side of it, which is actually the, the metadata that's reported as the shoot is happening. And all of that is just like a stills photographer would shoot a raw photo. All of that is being recorded and tracked so that we have perfect control over the image through the entirety of the pipeline because we're shooting Redfoot raw as well. So when we do something like rebaking a shot, like I was talking about for the, the exposure changes, when we rebake that shot, we will track in our database that that shot has been re-exposed or the ISO has been changed from 800 to 600 or 400. And then uh, when those frames are actually turned over to uh, the to Eric in the color correction suite, that's where he will start his exposure balance for the image. So he knows that we've already, that David has made those notes and we've already made those adjustments so that he's not starting from scratch and having to rebuild, sort of reinvent the wheel um, at his next stage. And, I, and that to me is really why all of that metadata is tracked so that we can work with a flexible, fluid image, and at the same time, not treat this as more traditional pipelines would, where every single stage kind of does their best work, but kind of starts from scratch. Were you guys working through COVID on this? Did any of this have to happen remotely? Talk to me about the remote workflows. We actually went remote for COVID a few days before uh, California itself decided to go remote. Um, We started seeing it developing. And I think all of us got rightfully so cautious of it. You know, we started talking about it well beforehand of like, oh, this person was going to go to a concert or this person was thinking about this thing or this travel. And oh, this might not be that great of an idea. Um, And actually, we have a little bit of uh, an advantage uh, that uh, my mother is actually an infectious disease specialist in New York. And so I was sort of hitting her up for info. It's like, what's really happening here? What's the inside track? What are your peers hearing? What should we be concerned about? And she was providing us a little bit of advice. Also because they were, at the time, New York was ahead of the country and how it was progressing. And so, yeah, one day I remember Kirk Sion and I sat down in Kirk's editing room and we just sort of said, all right. And, and I had I had already talked with Peter Mavramatis, our co-supervisor, about trying to figure out how, if we needed to go remote, how we would do it. Um, and getting media to everybody. And did we have storage? Did we need storage? How do we coordinate all this? As I was developing that, I remember having that meeting and we just made the call. This is, we need to do this. 
And so we did. And I, I believe California went home on a, like California essentially like closed all business and started to stay at home order on a Wednesday. And we actually had everybody working from home on the Monday before that. We, we're pretty lucky over uh, at number 13, uh, the way that David has worked as long as I've worked with him. And I did work in commercials for Mindhunter at, at Kirk's commercial editing company, Exile, um, before I was actually working with David at number 13. But it's always been a digital, very versatile process working with him. Um, he's very fluid and he does not need to be sitting in a room in order to review and edit and have a laser focus on what still what comments still need to be made. I think we had a little bit of an edge on that some of those foundations were already set up. Um, previously on Mindhunter, when they were shooting in Pittsburgh, there were times where Kirk would travel to Pittsburgh and work with David for a week while the shoot was still happening. And so even before I got to number 13, they had built uh, some protocol to be able to handle that. Um, and then once COVID hit and we made the decision to go home and realize that we needed to, I realized that that needed to be much more robust. And so what we did was we actually set everybody up uh, we set Kirk up and we set all of the assistant editors up. And that would be me, Jennifer, Russell, Casey. Uh, so five people, all to work from home. Uh, we gave everybody a copy of the media in H.264 form. Local. All local. Yeah. Uh, so the H.264s are a lot smaller. So, you know, it means that instead of the dailies being uh, 60 terabytes, it's 18 terabytes. Uh, and then there's a lot of other stuff to consider. There's visual effects that are constantly being delivered. There's music that's being composed by Trentanaticus that's going to be uh, coming down to us continuously. And they're going to be, like I was talking about with the After Effects handoffs, uh, I'm going to be generating After Effects files and renders. And Russell, is going to, Russell, another assistant editor of ours, Russell Anderson, is going to be generating After Effects files. And Jennifer is going to be generating After Effects files. How are we going to keep all that in sync? And so developing this sort of multi faceted cross-sync capability was the big complexity of it all. We had actually, thankfully, on Mindhunter, shifted around our infrastructure a little bit so that we had a VPN in place already. And that actually turned out to be a, a, an incredible help as well, because rather than keeping everybody isolated on their individual home local machines, we used the number 13 offices and the ability to VPN as the central main hub, we would call it like the mothership. And everybody would sync up to that and then it would feed back out to everybody else. And so what we did is we used two platforms to do that. We used Resilio Sync, um, which uh, you may be familiar with. And Resilio Sync is really good at syncing small files very fast. It is not great at keeping track of very large files, like changing video media. And it is not good at detecting changes made by multiple users across a server infrastructure. For example, if you and I are on two separate computers that are accessing the same server and you make a change to a Premiere project file, my Resilio sync will not see that. And so even though we're both on the same server and then we're syncing with someone in a remote location, that change that you made may not get synced for a while. We decided to use Resilio sync for the Premiere projects and the Premiere production because of its ability to keep those things in sync in real time, which works especially well for things like lock files, where a project locks very quickly if Kirk opens it, rather than Kirk opening up real one and then I open up real one and it turns out that we're competing with each other for who's going to have... One of us is going to bleed the other person's work. So using that actually allowed us to 
use a Premiere production remotely with multiple different people working in multiple different locations and feel like we're all working on a centralized server together. Uh, and then we use another uh, piece of software called Chronosync. And that is what we use to synchronize basically all of the media and everything that is not project file related. It requires a little bit of tweaking and a little bit of network setup. And those guys are great. I've emailed with them a number of times to sort of get into some of their like hidden setting files and uh, you know figure out how to make things work off the bat don't really seem like they should or maybe you have to hack it a little bit because it's really a, a backup platform but uh, we used it to synchronize all our media and basically that was set up on every single person's remote computer every 15 minutes it does a sweep of quickly changing media or, or media that changes often for example visual effects deliveries Casey Curtis, our, our other assistant editor who handles mostly handles VFX, he might receive a visual effects delivery at noon. He might receive another one at one, another one at two. And we obviously can't sync that once a day because he will receive those deliveries, cut them into real one. And then if Kirk opens real one to do some work, all of the work that Casey has done, it will be present in the project file. But if the media hasn't synced, it will all show up as offline. Um, so we want things like that to get synced reasonably quickly. So for media like that, we put uh, everyone's system on a 15-minute sync cycle. And the sync cycle would, if it had to sync nothing, it would basically take around two minutes to connect to the, the remote servers uh, and check if anything needed to be synced. And so, so every, you know, if we needed to sync 300 gigs of stuff, that would take a little while, depending on your connection. And that's all happening in the background? It's all happening in the background. In fact, um, it it was very fluid and uh, very easy to be working, even if something like the example I just gave happened where Casey had cut in a bunch of new VFX and it was still in the process of syncing to, say, Kirk's machine. I could text Kirk and say, hey, Casey, just cut in a bunch of stuff. Work in Real 3 for a while. I'll let you know when the sync is done. And then he could just keep working in Real 3. It's not like it occupied his hard drive, occupied all of his internet bandwidth. And we, we luckily have a very fast connection at number 13 to serve the data up. So it really was just limited by uh, everyone's download speed. Um, so we were able to shovel things around very quickly. And for the most part, except on the assisting side, when we were doing some QC and syncing large renders, um, we never really ran into uh, hurdles where we said, no, we can't work on that yet. And then the other thing that we set up Chronosync to do is it, it for media that wasn't really changing like dailies, where let's say we needed to do a rebake example, like I was explaining earlier. If that shot was rebaked, it doesn't really need to be transferred immediately because the edit can still happen. It's just going to look better tomorrow when the rebake is received. So for, for things like that that are less, less critical and time sensitive, we would set the computers on a daily cycle and they would sync all that additional media at 3 a.m. I think that that cycle, if nothing needed to be synced, that check took about like eight minutes. And then the last thing that Chronosync would do is we actually set it up to monitor system events on everyone's local machine for all of the things that uh, we assistants would be generating ourselves. So if I did a split screen comp and needed to go into After Effects to do it, Chronosync would detect that in my dynamic links folder, I saved a new file and elsewhere on the drive rendered that file to a quick time and it would then push it up to the number 13 servers and then when everyone else did their 15 minute sweep it would detect that those files were new and pull it down so that's how we sort of got to all of the assistants working in concert together and one of the things that we found was that remoting in was actually very fast and fluid so 
I preferred to work on my home machine when another assistant preferred to always remote in and do comps there. Um, we also found that doing exports at the office for posting things was, it was it, those, those computers are super fast. So it was a lot easier um, and beneficial to us to push things off to the office when we were doing things like exports. And then at the same time, we got to keep working. So we would remote in, set up a reel to export, export it at the office while we kept working on something else and then just jump in 10 minutes later, post it up to PIX. We ended up, it, a, a lot of times we all ended up using sort of a computer and a half at the same time. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Ben Insler. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Ben Insler. I just talked to a group of NYU editing students this morning and they were asking me what, you know, what do I think the future is going to hold? And I said, and I would be interested in hearing your opinion on this. I thought COVID has kind of sped up the need or the desire or the ability to remote and that that is going to be, while, while there's a ton of reasons to want to be in the same place, especially for a director and an editor or maybe an assistant and an editor, the ability to go remote is pretty compelling. It, it is. I actually, I agree with you. And I think that, I think it, it's worth saying before I say anything I'm about to say that COVID is terrible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it is not necessarily worth it to discover these benefits by having COVID be the consequence says the son of an infectious disease (laughs) having said that uh i think that one of the uh things that we've gotten to learn from what covid forced us into is that we actually have the tools where this is working and uh when it came to setting us up for example like i said we're lucky that we had a little bit of a foundation in place so that it wasn't just like starting from scratch Uh, we've always been uh, a, a facility that was deep in tech and advanced and looking at these solutions. Oh yeah. Um, but really, I mean, it was a, it was a few late nights, but I, we got set up in, uh, I want to say three or four days time. And then I, it, we didn't really, I say this, like I want to knock on wood, like I'm still nervous. Something is going to happen, but, um, we, <laughs> movies we, in we a can really... just to let you know the movie's <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah, thank you. We, we didn't hit any major hiccups. We were like, Oh, we have to stop working and fix this problem. It worked. Um, and I think that the working from home and, and the situation with COVID showed us, showed us that it's not that we're close. It's that we're there. Mm-hmm. The two things that we really lost by working remotely or when we would do uh, what we call our QC screenings, where uh, we're at a specific stage, the movie gets rendered uh, with sound mix and uh, color grade. It may not be finished, but we're at a certain stage of of completion. And we all get together in one room and we all watch it together and we all make notes on it. And then afterwards, this is, you know, for 
for one reel that may be 20 minutes long, this could be a two hour process. We watch through the whole thing. We all make notes and then we all go back through the whole movie person by person and go to all of our notes, uh, which is actually very fun to see. Oh, wow. You saw that. That's crazy. <laughs> I missed it. So whatever. <laughs> we, we did do that in a remote fashion with, uh, what are called PIX screening sessions. Mm -hmm. um, using the PIX platform, we were actually able to synchronize everybody's playhead and PIX together and then all get on a Zoom call at the same time. So we could all have our conversations and at the same time, for the most part, watch in sync. But we, we didn't have the ability to sort of do the true interaction that we would do there. And the other thing that we lost is it, at number 13, all of the editorial assistants work within like an eight foot radius of each other. Um, on Mank, Russell Anderson and I are in one room and then in an adjacent room with a door that's, it's a, it's a pocket door that's always open. So it's kind of just like a little, it, it's an extension of the office was Jennifer Chung. When we're working in that environment, it's really easy to not only hand things back and forth, but also detect when there might be a speed bump. Uh, you know, it's, it's something as simple as we're all so used to working together and thinking out loud and talking out loud that something happens and like someone says, Oh crap. <laughs> and You're there to hear it. And you're like, what's, what's, what happened? What's wrong. And that doesn't get in the way of if Russell says, Oh crap, it doesn't get in the way of me working. But at the same time, I can then have a conversation and we discover things a little bit earlier or find solutions a little bit more quickly. That to me is the thing that's lost. Yeah. I interviewed John Axelrad and his assistant editor, and he said the assistant was in the next room and he would listen to the director and the editor talk and they'd say something. And the next thing you know, he'd go, oh yeah, that comp's done. And they didn't even ask for it. You know, that's the kind of thing that you can't do if you're remote. You don't hear those conversations. And right. That's, and, and to me that those it's not that the work doesn't get done in the same way. It's just that um, there is, when you have really tight teams, those are the things that everyone's listening for. You know, we, we start to understand a, a language that David uses, that Kirk uses, that Peter uses. And then as the other thing is that we can kind of start to anticipate those things as we see, you know, people in different scenarios reacting to different things. And as a conversation turns into one thing or another in the room um, and not, and, and, and get a jump on it. Yeah. Um, realize that something is going to happen. Even something as simple as, um, you know, back on Mindhunter, we used to do these extensive postings of the whole show so that David over a long weekend could review the entire show in one sitting. Um, you know, you're talking about nine plus hours of content. And we might, I might be able to figure out in a screening of an episode that that might be necessary and get a jump on that. Whereas right now that type of thing really only gets communicated when an email or a call comes in because we're not there to feel that out. But all that aside, I think that what this proved is that we can do it. And I agree with you. I think that it would be great if there is actually a middle ground that is discovered where maybe middle ground isn't the right word, but a balance that's discovered where uh, there is a way for both sides to be incorporated so that people do have the freedom to work from home and and uh, be remote when they when it's helpful to them and then jump back into the office when it's helpful. And also, I think that the ability for actual collaboration cross-distance is so much proven by COVID. In fact, I just saw an article, I think, last night about how some directors have been directing commercials and, like, 
I don't remember the actual cities that were in the article, but like the shoot is happening in Hong Kong while they're watching the video feed from the cameras in LA uh, because of COVID and literally directing across the world in real time. No one ever would have suggested that that was possible or in terms of like latency or secure if COVID didn't push us there. And now we're like, of course, yeah, that's how we're going to do it. And it works and it is secure. Of course, there's always flaws in security and that still needs to be worked out. But uh, I think it's awesome. I really do. Let's talk a little bit more about the creative side of your your job with Kirk and you and the other editors. What are you doing with him to collaborate creatively once the kind of technical work is done? How much is he depending on you? Hey, you know, take a look at this sequence or help me prep something or actually cut a scene for me. Uh, I think it it varies on the project and it varies what the needs are. Kirk is a very team involved person. He has no problem with, uh, you know, someone hanging out in the edit bay and just kind of talking through a scene. He has offered things for me to assemble before, which is always uh, such an honor and privilege to be able to do and always also so much fun. One of the things that Kirk is really phenomenal at, though, uh, which it's, it's, it's sort of like an impossible skill to develop and he just has it, is having an intuitive understanding of also what David has telegraphed to him by the process of shooting to be used and what the intent is for the scene. Um, and so when he has offered something to me to assemble or, or whatnot, trying to actually solve that puzzle, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think all of us at number 13, we have this, this great sort of thinking of we're all there to help David make this movie. We're all there to try and get out of his head and onto the screen, what he was envisioning and trying to figure out it's, it's not about like, Hey, how do I edit the scene? But how do I help pull that apart? to figure out how David wanted the scene built. Um, and Kirk just has such a phenomenal way of saying, oh, that's what David meant this to be for. And that's why this looks like this, because it's actually not used for that. It's used over here. And that shot is clearly expiring here and we should be over there. And these angles look so similar. You know, maybe this angle A to angle B is like five degrees off but they look like the same shot, but, oh, it's for that look, looking over to this person. He just has has such a surgical precision of this is where the starting point is. Even just getting an opportunity to dive into that for a minute is is really fun and, and also really humbling to just see Kirk fly through a scene that took a, you know, three or four days to shoot and he gets it assembled in a day and a half. Watching through the dailies and everything, it's just, it does, it puts you in awe. And then there's there's a lot of collaboration on uh, the side of uh, figuring out how to deal with the details of things. There are a lot of times where Kirk can't truly get a scene advanced to the point where it's ready to present to David because they've gone through a series of selects in the dailies and they all need a comp done or they all need stabilization or they all need this or that or whatever. And those actually sound like very technical things, but they're not. You know, the, when we do stabilization on shots, we are always trying to honor the work of the cinematographer and the camera operator. We're not trying to reshoot the shot. We're not trying to put our creativity of framing and whatnot on top of it. But at the same time, all of that comes into play because if a shot needs to be stabilized and we are shifting the frame around a little bit, we need to bring our education and our creativity to it to sort of layer on top of the work that was already done and honor it, but make sure that it still looks good. Otherwise, 
we're not we're not adding anything to it. We're not stabilizing it if we don't do anything to it. So that actually is a very creative process to figure out like, okay, how does this look? How does this honor the creativity that was already added, but enhance it? And the same thing goes with things like split screen comps is actually figuring out like, okay, this has been rough together because this is the action, the speed, the pace that Kirk is trying to build in this shot. Now, how do we sell it? And there is a lot of pride and creativity that goes into making it work. So could could you explain that? So when you're talking about the pace of a split screen, you're saying that there's a split screen that's probably between two people and you're trying to speed up the dialogue or or how one person interacts with the other by tightening it and then hiding the fact that there's an edit in there? Yeah, uh, we do that in a variety of ways and forms. The simple example would be if uh, a conversation was shot, sort of a shot reverse over the shoulder. And in order for the actors to not be stepping on each other's lines, they weren't, let's say they were constantly cutting each other off, but they might not actually be cutting each other off in the shoot so that all the lines are recorded clean. To tighten up that pacing and actually make it seem like an aggressive argument where the characters were cutting each other off, the dialogue would then get tightened. And traditionally, the way that that works is that the over-the-shoulder characters' uh, mouth and actions are somewhat hidden by the over-the-shoulder, but you might have lip flap. You might not actually get the dialogue aligned, and it's just sort of something that is a byproduct of the process that we allow the audiences to bridge over and forget. Um, we don't do that. Uh, we will actually splice it together so that that next line is being said by the foreground character and it lines up correctly. Then we do a lot of that for manipulating time or, or, or and we might also do that for uh, continuity. So if in one take, a character on the left side of the frame goes to pick up the phone uh, because the phone is ringing, but we actually want that phone to be ringing three seconds later because of the take that was used on the character of the next shot, uh, we will actually figure out a way to splice the frame and take the characters picking up the phone and roll their part of the take earlier so that they are actually not picking up the phone when they performed it, but when it needs to happen in the in the movie. Uh, and then we also do a little bit of tricks sometimes with shifting time itself so that let's say the same example of two characters arguing, but it's a two shot rather than a shot reverse over the shoulder. We may find places where we can actually split the screen down the middle and speed up the, the character that's that is about to interrupt. I, I mean, I guess we're talking about Mank, so let's use Mank. Let's just say that yeah, we... Mank's very he's he's very quick witted, <laughs> so he's always stepping on people. He's always right on the next conversation. Yes. <laughs> so let's just let's just say that we have. Uh, I, I'm going to make something up here. This is not something that's that's in the movie. Um, but let's just say that we were having a argument between Gary Oldman and Charles Dance, which is Herman Mankiewicz and um, William Randolph Hearst, right? And they're in a two shot. And because of what I was describing earlier with them not stepping on each other's lines, Charles Dance is supposed to cut off Gary Oldman, but it's a little bit delayed. We may find a place where Charles Dance isn't actually moving very much in the frame and retime him so that when it's still, it actually speeds up. So there isn't a hard cut in there, there isn't a jump, but that gets sped up without any visual effect and it allows his later line to now be read earlier. And that ends up being a split screen that allows us to repace the take and sort of adjust the performance to exactly the way that the um, that Kirk and David want the conversation to flow. And we do that stuff often. Can you describe a scene in the movie that you remember being a split screen? There's probably a bunch of them, but... I would not be surprised if there are hundreds. Hundreds. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, there was something else I wanted to ask you about, which I, really intrigued me, and it's something I've heard from multiple editors, which is a good editor knows what the intent is of the director by just looking at the footage. And you said Kirk's very good at that. Can you explain exactly what you might see in a shot or what Kirk might have explained to you? I know that I need to start with this scene because of this, or I know I need to be on this shot at this time. David is telling me this through the shot itself. Sure. Uh, there, there's one in particular that I remember where I was in the room when Kirk was going through some of the dailies and he looked at an angle and he was like, this angle doesn't seem to match uh, the line of action of the rest of the scene. Um, and he was, you know, obviously we've read through the script and we know what's being shot, but he was just watching through the dailies and just sort of intuiting it as he went through being like, hmm, I'm not really sure what that's used for yet. I think if I remember correctly, Kirk was like, let's keep going. We'll see what else we got. We'll come back to this one. And then, but he just let it, he just let it keep playing. Uh, and then all of a sudden he was like, oh, and it just, it sort of, just sort of clicked with him. Like there was a slight little camera move or a slight little turn of, of Gary's head or something. And he was like, oh, we're shooting. This is, we're, this is shooting for that. And someone less seasoned, less skilled, less fluent in David's language might have said, well, I have this other angle. Why not cut to it? And Kirk knew from the moment he saw it, this is not something David wants to use. Right away, he was like, this is not in David's film language. Uh, I, there's, a, there's a red flag here, and I need to solve this puzzle. Um, and not that it was a difficult one for him to solve. He just needed the, the time to look at it for a second. Uh, and then immediately when it became David's language, he knew right away, that's what he wants to use here. So interesting. That's really, that's really interesting. Any, anything with a uh, structure or story itself, um, the way the film played that you get a chance to speak into, you talked about these uh, screenings that you guys do where you write down notes. Talk to me a little bit about some of the things that are discovered during those note taking sessions. Usually in those note taking sessions, it's um, much more of a technical QC path. We do have creative screenings. Usually that is a maybe a variety of people in the room sort of taking notes and keeping tabs on things. But usually those are for Kirk and David. But, you know, that's not to say that that. Like I said before, Kirk is very collaborative and team oriented. You know, he will, after the screening, say, All right, let's talk about it. What did you guys think? He's not making it an exclusive process. Uh, I remember Kirk coming and grabbing us and being like, check this out. <laughs> you know, so and like, you know, and, and then he'll also ask questions like, did this resonate? Or was there anything that felt weird? Or was there any pacing? You know, he's, he's not exclusively keeping it shuttered to himself and David. And that's another collaboration, creative collaboration aspect to the answer uh, of the question that you asked earlier. Uh, which is really fun to just be able to sort of pop in and, and be part of the team and speak your mind and not just, you know, feel like you're on the sideline. The the QC screenings, that tends to be more technical. Uh, everything from, oh, hey, there's VFX that we should do there to, oh, is this something that we should reframe so that the uh, symmetry of the shot is perfect? I'm sure it's no surprise that David is a very, very precise, detail-oriented director. And so part of our job is to make sure that we have his back on that. And I mean, he doesn't really miss anything. <laughs> but just like I was saying earlier with all being in the room and anticipating things based on a comment or you know a conversation, we've all come to learn that same language of the details that he expects and is pushing for. And then I think we all really take pride in trying to shepherd that. You know, he, he, everybody that's on the team, I think he expects that you're doing your best and that we're all speaking the same language. And I think we all are really proud to be doing our best 
And so that's what we do in a lot of those screenings is we look out for all of these little details and make sure that it's perfect. I think of him as a very visual director. Talk to me about audio, his sense of audio, and also what you do, sound design, that kind of stuff is a typical thing that Kirk might hand to an assistant. Is that something that also happens at number 13? Uh, Sound design is actually a big one on the creative side that uh, gets pushed over to the assistants. Kirk will do a lot of the sound editing himself, especially dialogue editing and building the scene. And then a lot of the sound design does come over to us um, simply because a lot of sound design is hunting and, you know, finding that perfect sound of a tea kettle or that perfect sound of a phone ring. In Mank, for example, uh, we're talking about a period piece and there are a variety of phones used, whether they're, you know, the phone that's pedestal phones that, you know, sort of patched into the, the thing that you're that you're used to thinking of from like Andy Griffith show type of thing. <laughs> right. And there are actually rotary phones in there, handset phones. I guess maybe not rotary. I don't, I, I don't know for sure, but there are definitely handset phones. And figuring out, actually doing the research so that in offline, we can make that pedestal phone sound like a pedestal phone. What do those bells sound like? What does the handset phone sound like? So that it actually feels right. That's some of the stuff, some of the detail that we do in sound uh, that comes back to us because that would really get in the way of Kirk's ability to go from scene to scene and keep the movie building. But then we will also do sound design for things like ambience and sound beds. We would do extensive sound design for whether or not it was daytime or nighttime or whether or not the windows were open or closed. Like, do you hear the coyotes? Don't you hear the coyotes? What does the wind sound like outside? Is the door open? Is the screen door swinging and creaking? Is the fan moving or not moving? We would take all that into account, even in offline. And then we would obviously send it up to Skywalker Sound and they would do this the hundredfold and then they'll send us back sound beds once they have something really really intricately built but we'll do that in offline right from the start and that actually can be a lot of fun as well the other thing with sound that we changed uh with with mank which we weren't doing previously is that we set up the premiere projects this time so that we always had access to all of the production tracks live in the edit so at any point if we needed to go to someone's individual mic uh, it was right there available to us all the time. But it probably wasn't in Kirk's timeline. It wasn't in Kirk's timeline, but by simply matching back to the clips, the way that we used to do it was that we had the production mix down, went to the dailies, and then if we needed to go to an ISO mic, we had to go back to the production audio and find it and cut it in. This this way, anyone could match back and have the an ISO mic in there in literally seconds. Is that something you built specifically with your internal coding abilities, or is it something internal to Premiere that allowed you to do that uh it was it was two things premiere allows you to do it um but what we did is we then figured out a workflow to sort of tell premiere all the audio is there but you're not going to cut it into the timeline which is sort of like a little manipulation on telling premiere how many audio channels are in the clip or how many audio channels to use as opposed to how many audio channels there are ah that's interesting so you can still match back and see them but it doesn't think they're there when it cuts them in. And then we also change the way that we process our dailies because usually dailies are processed with just the production mix down. And so it started from the next lab stage of actually having the dailies operator sync all channels, or I guess they all sync when when the audio is synced, but actually render out all channels. So it made our dailies larger, um, but it made when we needed to go back to ISOs, made that workflow much faster. Uh, the other thing that we did sound-wise, which I think that you'll really love to hear, is that like I was talking about with with tweaking the picture to make the picture look aged, uh, we were doing that with sound too, so that the sound had a feeling of old 
1930s, 1940s uh, Hollywood and the way that audio was recorded back then as opposed to the perfect audio now. And so we worked with Skywalker Sound before the dailies ever started being shot to build a filter set to go into the premiere submixes so that even though we were working with perfectly clean audio that could be mixed precisely by Skywalker, in premiere, all of the dialogue audio was filtering through submixes. And we had two different ones depending on the type of sound we wanted so that it was getting degraded live so that when the edit was being played back for Kirk, for David and for us, we were actually hearing it in kind of like this old school way. Oh, that's awesome. Probably analog and also some kind of noise or hiss or whatever the tape quality was. It, we had a, a degradation process for the audio itself to sort of crunch it down and make it sound old. And then we had some audio beds that were also playing underneath that to give it sort of like the uh, like film flutter and warble and the sound of the, the audio actually like playing back and sort of like scratching and hissing as it was being read by sort of whether it was optical or otherwise, but sort of that, that destruction of it because it was an old analog process. Yeah. You were talking about audio design and finding stuff and also like making sure, you know, the sound of something is perfect. How much of that is going to a sound library and how much of it is your own like in-house Foley and ADR and you just take your zoom recorder and get a door slam? What, what we're trying to do is, is get it to sound correct enough that it feels when we're talking about audio, getting it to sound correct enough in the offline so that it feels fluid. It feels environmentally appropriate and it's not getting in the way of the scene being interpreted or causing felt properly. Right. And, and, and that works in both ways. Like is the sound design hindering? Is it, is what we did getting in the way or is it not there? And so the absence of it is hindering the ability to take in the whole scene. And I mean, I actually remember in one scene in Mindhunter uh, working on the background sound of a train passing and that being a very detailed process where we tried to find the right train and give it the right tone as it was passing by. And Kirk and I listened to it a number of times and did a number of passes on how should it sound when, uh, you know, if we're inside of the car versus the camera being outside of the car and how loud should it be and exactly what the tone should be. We did that in offline before it even got to Skywalker and then they obviously did much more to it. But for the most part, it's library just because we have a variety of options from, from all of the sort of temp sounds that we can use um, that we, that we have access to. And we don't necessarily have every single thing to record. For example, if we have uh, some of the period cars from Menk, you know, we may not have that appropriate Ford or Chevrolet or whatever at the time was, was being driven, but we may find a car in the sound library that is from that period that is at least passable. Whereas at number 13, we have no cars from the 1930s to actually go and record, even though like, all right, we've had to loop this thing 14 times because it's really, <laughs> we're supposed to be in the car, but we only have drive-bys. But when it's driving by, that sounds perfect. You know, that's that's really why. But at the same time, like the very same Zoom recorder that I'm using here, we use the Zoom recorder to record things when we need to. If we, there's a scene in, in Mank where in the background, you can hear Mank's sons uh, behind a phone conversation playing and, and breaking things in the background. And uh, for a good portion of the edit, that was Russell Anderson and me. And we went out to the, <laughs> we, I mean, we don't sound like those kids and, you know, it's not like, we were ever intended to stay in there, <laughs> but we needed something. 
And we had originally put in the sound of kids playing and, and just sort of messing around. And David, you know, made notes uh, about what that should actually be. We kind of racked our brains for a minute. We were like, how do we, how do we build this? How do, this, is, this is such a precise note. How do we build it? And then they were like, why? We record temp dialogue when we need to. Let's just go out to the parking lot <laughs> and pretend that we're like wrestling for a Frisbee. <laughs> and, so, and so we did. And we, we, did like, we did like eight takes of it. And then we came and brought it back in and we cut it in and we were like, nope, that's not right. And we went back outside and we recorded three more takes of it at like, the right <laughs> intensity and the right speed. And we dropped that in. And, um, you know, like I said, it was never intended to stay in there. Um, but that was one that needed to be recorded. So we did. You mentioned premiere productions. For those that are not clear or don't, haven't been paying attention, at least for the last about 12 months of premiere, what is a production and how does it change things for you and for your ability to organize a, a large project in premiere? So the traditionally, if you want to go back, say two to three years, uh, the way that premiere worked is that everything was encapsulated in a single production file or a single project file. Sorry. And so uh, you could have different projects that you're working in different premiere project files on a large project that you're working on. People might be familiar in the past with, uh, say, having a, like on the, in the final cut days, having a sound effects project or a music project that was separate from their edits. And then they would just bring in the music that they needed from the music project. But it wasn't, that let multiple editors access the project. Uh, and it also let things be encapsulated in separate buckets as opposed to everyone requiring this one giant project all the time. I guess about a year and a half ago, uh, maybe two years ago, um, Adobe really started pushing uh, what it called were shared projects. And shared projects took this concept and said, instead of having multiple projects, but as you want an item to move from project to project, it becomes a duplicate copy of it. We're going to allow there to be linkage between the project. So you take that piece of music, bring it into your edit project, and the edit project knows that it came from the music project, so it's not going to create another copy. What Premiere Productions does is it takes that approach and it encapsulates it into this one single folder item called a Premiere Production. And what that means is that you're now no longer essentially at the finder level managing all of your different shared media linked projects, but still treating them as individual project files that you are managing yourself. You now point Premiere to the production folder and it opens up a production window that looks just like you would be uh, any other, any other Premiere window that you would be used to for navigating. Um, and, but that production window only holds folders, which you could think of like, like uh, bins for um, different projects uh, and project files themselves. And uh, the great thing about that is that it also tracks the lock files within that production. Uh, so you can see who has what open, and then it, it will prevent you from opening a project that's locked and actually being able to overwrite it, but still let you access the contents of that locked file. And it manages the entire contents of that folder structure and directory for you. So if you want to move things around, rename things, it's all possible in there. And you never have to say, all right, hey, let me go find where that lives on the finder. Um, so in many ways, it it takes that that multiple year, years of progress that I just described of going from single project to multi-project to sort of encapsulated environment. And it puts it into a single window 
that lets you say, I never leave to leave Premiere. It's all presented right in front of me. And it gives you a very sort of streamlined view of a multi-user environment that really, in my opinion, it's funny because when when you hear about it, if when I when I describe it in this sort of developmental way over many years, it doesn't sound like the leaps are huge, but there's a really substantial difference to having everything organized in Premiere, working in Premiere, staying in one ecosystem, and just continuously, fluidly getting the information of who's in what project, what do I have open, what don't I have open, and where is everything organized in Premiere for me that lets us work a lot more fluidly and a lot more smoothly. Mostly because the projects within the production are smaller. Yeah, and that's a great point. Because of the the cross-project linking, when I bring that piece of music over into a project, it no longer it doesn't increase the size of the project because that new item is there. Like when we on Mank, for example, every single reel in the film has its own project, but then every single scene in the film has its own project. Uh, there's a music project from Trent Atticus. There's a uh, working folder for every single one of the assistants where we have tons of working projects within them rather than having one giant working project that just gets more and more and more bloated. There's a sound effects project. There's for each assistant, there's a dynamic links project where, <clears throat> excuse me, where the dynamic links get rendered. That's where we offload all those, even though they get cut into the sequence that they're in in real time when we do a render and replace, we bring those renders over to this sort of sidelining project for all the dynamic links so that they're not cluttering up and bloating the real project files. So everything does open very, very quickly. And uh, yes, things stay small. Awesome. And then, then I know from previous, uh, I think Gone Girl or one of the things I talked to Kirk about back in the old days, the other problem was if you had a different project for Real 1 and Real 2 and you're sitting there with David and you're, you get to the end of Real 1 and he's like, okay, where's the next scene? Now you have to close down Real 1 project, launch Real 2, and it takes, you know, I don't know, could take 15 minutes or something. So what, what would happen before is that I just mentioned that we had a project per reel, but also a project per scene. What would happen before is that we would, Kirk would build the individual scenes and then start assembling them into reels or on Mindhunter episodes as all of the content streamed in from uh, production. And as the scenes could be, you know, it's all shot and out of order. So as the order starts to come together, reaching that critical point of enough has come in from production, it will get strung out into a sequence. And what used to happen before was that as those scenes from the scenes project were put into the master sequence for the reel, all of the media that was associated with that building of the reel would get copied into the reel project, which would make it very heavy. And like you're saying, I mean, we still have our real projects can still be pretty heavy because of the detail of the sequences in them. But like you're saying, every single piece of media that was associated with building that sequence, that, that, that entire reel, that entire episode is now in that new project. And in productions with the cross-reference, uh, the, the cross-referencing of media and the linking of media, all of that scene material stays in the scene projects, in their individual scene projects. And it's only the reference to them that gets put into the real project and into the sequence. And the cool thing about it is that the matchback does work back. This is one of the things that the production is tracking. Matchback does work back to the source. So if you want to match back to that clip from scene three and go back and look at the select string out or the dailies, you can match back. Premiere will automatically open up that project for the scene and load up the appropriate clip in the, in the browser window. 
And so it works exactly the way that you would expect in a project, but it opens up lightning fast because it's only scene eight. And then if you need scene nine, the same thing happens with scene nine. And so you're right. Uh, if, if you were to be very diligent about keeping your live edit project down to just one sequence, uh, in the example that you gave, we could very easily jump from real one, open up real two, open up real three in a matter of seconds. Based on the way that we work with versioning and incrementing and sort of auditioning some things and having some backups in there, it would take, it would take a, a I'll say a fair amount of time, uh, you know, as we got to the end with all the VFX cut in, it could take 30 seconds, 45 seconds to open up a reel, but uh, that's still not that bad. No, 30, 40. <laughs> You're right. It could, it could, before it could take five, 10 minutes. Yeah. That's, so that's a huge improvement. Uh, ben, thank you so much for talking to us about this project. Congratulations on working on a really, a really fine piece of work. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for all your expertise. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Ben Insler. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. And to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.